You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 215 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm a little bit sort of disbelieving that we've been talking to each other for 215 episodes, actually. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Like if you added it all up, like back to back, that's an awful (laughs) lot of time that we've spent just, you know... Shooting the breeze, Val. Gossiping. (laughs) Not gossiping. Imparting words of wisdom regarding writing. Imparting words of wisdom. That's exactly right. In fact, Nat Fig, that's her username, has given the title Full of Useful Wisdom in her review on iTunes. And Nat Fig has said, as an aspiring writer, I find this podcast incredibly insightful and at the same time entertaining. There's great chemistry between Val and Al and together they hold and share an immense amount of industry wisdom. Thank you. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's from Natalia. And that's Thank you very much. I've never really thought of us as wise. Do you think <laughs> yourself as wise? I think that's for old people. I think Maybe anyone who's heard you dissolve into hysterical giggles would not, <laughs> would not put the word wise in front of you. However, you do know a lot of stuff, so, you know, I will, I will give you that. You were very wise. I, well, you know, I just saw you on Friday night. I think we were wise not to Facebook Live at that particular event. Oh, um, yes. Which you did suggest afterwards we should have done. I'm thinking, no, yes. I'm glad we didn't do that. Um, we'll do it one day yeah, because you know. you're going to sing, remember, with your feather boa. I'm going to Facebook Live that, that's for sure. <laughs> we'll do it. I'm going to now avoid you for the rest of my life so that no, you can't know, put a camera how, in front of me. I know how to convince you. Oh, how are you going to do that? I'm going to spread the word to our podcast listeners that Al is going to do it for charity. Uh-huh, uh-huh, right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and if we raise enough right. money for a charity, Al will do it. <laughs> place a great amount of faith in my sort of you know goodness towards mankind (laughs) yeah that's right anyway um thank you to nat fig for thinking that we are wise really appreciate it and if any other listeners have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on itunes that'd be awesome we'd be really grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings now shall we plunge straight into it al into the world of writing and publishing let's immerse ourselves immediately Let's do that. We have, okay, I have a link called Six Tips for Writing a Great Police Procedural and it's by Carrie Smith on the Writer's Digest site. And I thought that this was um, 
pretty interesting because, you know, crime fiction is really huge these days. When mm-hmm. I go to my local bookshop and look at their, you know, front section where they put all of their bestsellers, so much of it is crime and also real crime or true crime. But uh, this particular one is about police procedurals. And of course, that is, you know, like when you watch Law and Order or CSI or, or that sort of thing, there are certain things that certain frameworks you need to be aware of in order to write it properly. Because if you don't follow those frameworks, if you don't write it with some level of accuracy to the way police do things, then immediately your story loses credibility. Yeah. Mm. So one of the things that this post is saying is readers of police procedurals have certain expectations. And that is so true. Readers Mm. want to match wits with your detective. And it says they're betting you can identify the murderer before your police detective does. So give your readers a chance. It's very important that you introduce the body and all the key suspects, including the killer, in the first third of the book. Provide clues, but don't let the investigation be too straightforward. And, of course, Mm. you do need the red herrings, but they shouldn't be gratuitous dead ends. They should indirectly move the plot forward. Now, you can always have that sense of um, dissatisfaction when the killer is introduced too late. It's almost like um, a cop-out. And even though I love Hawaii Five-O, the television series, and <laughs> love the music. and Which I makes me watch- laugh every time, but, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I just, yeah, it's so good. It is very naughty. It's probably not the best storytelling on earth. Surprise, surprise. I know. Because often the killer or the baddie is introduced very late in the piece and it is a bit of a cop out. But that's okay. I love the show so much. I just suspend my disbelief and I just look at Because they're wearing Hawaiian shirts, so anything's (laughs) possible. Is that it? Is that how it works? Yeah, it's a bit like that. Mm, And because I just like looking at the pictures, you know, all of the shots of Hawaii. But if you're reading and... There, your in in your story, the killer is almost like an afterthought as an excuse to wrap things up. It's very dissatisfying. So, yeah, your readers have certain expectations, and accurate police procedure is vital. So so important. If you're going to write a police procedural, don't necessarily believe everything you watch on television or whatever. You need to make sure that it's accurate because it only takes someone with a slight um, knowledge of what is likely to happen or what is likely to be the the police process to have that instant feeling that your entire book isn't credible. So make sure you you know, do your research, talk to, to police, um, nurture a friendship with a police person so that you can um, ask them these sorts of questions. Uh, I think I've mentioned before um, on um, some television shows and, you know, when I did like an internship on Water Rats back in the day, they had a full-time script consultant who was just a police a police constable or sergeant or whatever he was who was seconded full-time to the show Purely mm. to say, nah, we wouldn't do that, or no, we'd yes, do it this would. way, or whatever. Hmm. Yes. So, well, yeah. I have some points to add to that because I think the next yes. few points in this particular article are as important as what you're saying. As yeah. someone who reads a lot of police procedural, because I actually really like it, um, yeah. your detective's backstory matters. And I think that this is just so important. The character, 
the thing that really makes a police procedure sing and makes a series, you know, take off is the character. And I think sometimes yes. people forget that. Like, I mean, your your case can be as convoluted and as clever as you want, but if it's not being told from a point of view that's really going to appeal um, to the readership, you, you there's there's not a lot of point because, of course, your character drives as a story, and your character is is the person who conveys your reader through the story. So, you know, the ones that go very well are are rich. They're rich characters. They have a lot going on. And um, I mean, in the article on Writer's Digest, they talk about Harry Bosch, who is, uh, you know, a huge favourite worldwide, Michael Connolly's mm. detective. Um, I also like, they also mentioned Adam Dalgleish, who is uh, Peter James's detective, um, who's fantastic. Ruth Rendell had Inspector Wexford, who was mm. just a massive, you know, favourite of mine. And my latest new favourite is Adrian McKinty's Sean Duffy. And oh, that's, yes. um, which is fantastic. So, of course, we interviewed Adrian about a thousand years ago on the podcast, um, mm-hmm. and it was remains one of the most entertaining interviews that I've ever done. So, if you mm. haven't listened to it, go back and find him. I don't remember where he was, but he's somewhere back in the archives. Um, mm. But yeah, those characters are are just, you know, so interesting and so three-dimensional and they have so many things going on in their lives that it just keeps things rolling along as a subplot to the crime. So you kind of have this tandem thing of the character's life and the crime and it's all obviously wrapped up together, um, which is really important to think about. So if you're going to, if you want to write this kind of thing, you've got to create a complex character like a character that is as complex as your case, basically. Um, the other point that they make in this is, um, which I also completely agree with, is that setting is as important as character. And I think that that's something else that you um, need to really think about. Where are you going to put these these crimes? What are you, you know, going to, to – where are these people going to be working? And, um, of course, you know, Ian Rankin, Ian Rankin's Rebus is working out of, you know, Scott, various bits of Scotland, mostly Edinburgh, mm. um, which is and, – and, and the, the, the setting becomes as much a, a sort of a, a character in the book as the, as the lead character. The same with yeah. the Sean Duffy series by Adrian McKinty. It's kind of, you know, 1980s um, Britain. We've got the Troubles in the background – sorry, 1980s um, Northern Ireland. We've got the um, – the troubles in the background. It's just, again, really, really rich. And there's so much going on as part of the setting that you as a reader feel completely immersed in it. So yes, you have the crime. Yes, you have the police procedural, but then there's all this other stuff going on as well that makes Mm. it feel A, immersive, but also gives you as a writer, it gives you space and room to bamboozle your reader as well. It gives you places mm. to put red herrings. It gives you, it gives you places to distract. You know, when your when your setting is rich, you have places to distract your reader so that the you know the business of the crime can continue without your reader knowing by page three who did it, um, or who done it, as they say. Yes. So yeah. Yes. So I think um, you know those two points in this uh, article are really you know, really worth thinking about. So yes, you need a complex plot, but you have to think about these other, you know, those other things as well. Your person and your place are very, very important. Very important. And the Adrian McKinty interview for listeners who want to check it out is episode 97. 
So I thought we'd would move on to something from Anne R. Allen's blog, uh, and that is how to write an author bio for any occasion. And mm. I think that this is really important because sometimes, I mean, we have spoken about the importance of having an author bio and that's like your about section on your website or something like that. And people put effort into crafting that bio, but then they put it there and they leave it and they think that they just reuse the same one for whatever purpose. And I often see people or know that people will cut and paste that bio, the that exact bio, and put it in a grant proposal or they'll put it in an e email where they're pitching themselves to you know someone whether that's a journalist or a publisher or whatever or they cut and paste their bio or a section of that bio when they're using it to um, give it to somebody uh, to introduce them at a festival or something but the thing is I'm a big big fan of the fact that you should tailor your bio to that particular purpose so you would write a different bio if somebody was introducing you at a festival compared to a different bio if you were pitching yourself to a publisher compared to a different bio if you were doing a school talk or or whatever. So this is kind of along those lines in that um, the post says that you should have a one or two line bio and that is, of course, something that you might want to use for Twitter or on a magazine byline or something like that. Um, but then you should also write a short paragraph that you might use for online profiles where you've got, um, um, you know, about Alison Tate and then you've got a paragraph at the bottom. And then you would, should have a longer one page or no more than one page anyway bio that you would put on your about me page or where you're sending it to agents or publishers or editors who want to see your bio. And it's so important to make sure that each bio is meaningful. In in a one-page bio, I reckon, you know, it's it's not as hard because you've got more space, but so many people waste the their one-sentence bio and they, mm. they waste it with, with things like, um, I uh, has always aspired to climb the four peaks of, you know, Nepal or whatever. That mm. may well be your aspiration, but if you're an author – you should be writing more writing-related stuff than quirky mm. things like that. You can – that's not to say you can't be quirky, but just don't waste your words, right? Mm. So, I mean, do you do that? Do you write separate bios for different purposes? Yeah, I do. And, in fact, I was just, just thinking about that as you were saying it because I tend to write even for the um, – I'm just looking at my Twitter bio right now, which needs update dating. So I'm really glad we had this talk. Um, <laughs> but for the for the um, so for example, I've just done a whole range of different guest posts um, to promote um, the Adaban cipher in various places, mm. you know, around the world, around the web. Um, and I've written you know posts for writing websites, posts for parenting websites, posts for these posts for that, all different. And pretty much every bio that I put on each of those was different. So I tweaked it in some way, thinking yes. about always thinking about the audience and yes. I think that that's um that I think that's some, sometimes where authors make a mistake they think about it and 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 I get it they think about what they want to say they don't think about what's actually relevant to the readership that they're that they're um putting this bio in front of so what you basically yes. it's, it's a little bit like I guess it's my freelance writing background so I'm thinking about the audience and I'm thinking about the angle of my bio that is going to be of most interest to that particular audience. So for the parenting websites, for example, 
um, obviously, I, I that I, I will mention I will mention that I'm a mum in those bios. Mm. You know that I have you know mum of two boys, thirteen and ten, because it gives me immediately I'm I'm in their ballpark. I'm not someone yes. writing about about kit books. You know, because like, I often do book lists for those particular kind of sites. I'll do lists of you know great books by Australian authors and things like that, and then have my my book and my bio at the end and stuff. So I I, I put the fact that I'm a mum of two boys in there, and they immediately know that if I'm giving them recommendations in that ballpark, that I I've at least read you know I'm reading widely. I'm not just mm. throwing lists of of books at them, stuff like that. If I'm writing for a writing website, though, I'm going to focus on other things. They don't necessarily need to know that I'm a mum. Do you know what I mean? So yes. I think about what does this audience need to know about me, but what are they also going to want to know about me? So it's not just what do I want to tell them. It's yeah. what they need to know sort of thing. So, um, And I think sometimes that's probably where authors go mostly wrong is just thinking about, well, this is what I want to say. Okay. Mm. But if your audience doesn't want to read that, they won't read it. And therefore your whole bio is wasted. So, you know, it's, it's sort of that. And I try to keep everything as short as possible and get, Mm. you want to basically get to the link, particularly on the internet. You want to get to the link as quickly as possible, you know, in the, in the hopes of actually, you know, the payoff for me is often people coming back. So it's not just, here's my stuff in front of you, but why don't you come and find out more sort of thing. So, um, I think it's, it's thinking about what do you want people to do and what what do they need to know, basically, to yeah. do what you want them to do? Absolutely. And there's some great tips in this post, which, of course, we'll put in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Now, regular listeners will know that we have, on some occasions, mentioned how fascinated we are at the names of paint colours and how people come up with names of paint colors and you know just colors generally because I go to my local hardware store and I look through um, this is not sponsored in any way by the way I look through the Dulux (laughs) Atlas the Atlas is this big book they have with lots and lots of every single shade and all of the fantastic names that they've got in um, uh, you know in, in their Atlas and they've got names like fiddlesticks or Alpha Centauri or Monastic or Cowardly Custard or Wing Commander, Metro Mars, Lippy. My favourite at the moment is Island Sea. Anyway, as in my favourite colour. And some Mm. of the names are so evocative and I often sit there because there's literally thousands of names and I go, how in the world do you come up with this and how do you distinguish that colour with that colour? And so I thought, let's just ask. So we've written a blog post on the Australian Writers' Centre blog on the curious business of naming colours. And we mm. interviewed people from Dulux, um, as I've mentioned, but also an Australian nail polish brand called Kester Black because they've got really uh, cute colours like Sugar Daddy, Alimony and Prenup. <laughs> so they're a little bit different. They're, they're, they are more evocative of an emotion or, or, or a situation, whereas the Dulux colours uh, do kind of represent the colours in, in some way. And it's interesting because, and we'll put the link in the show notes, of course, but um, the representative from Dulux talks about the fact that they use everything available to get inspiration for these words like atlases, magazines, 
books, street directories, websites, dictionaries, thesauruses, and and they do come up with a whole combination of names, but then they need to do some research to firstly to make sure that the name doesn't exist in their database because they literally got thousands and to check mm. that it's not a trademark name by somebody else because you might think, you know, Eureka, I've got the perfect colour, but then it could actually belong to someone else. And only after they've done all of that rigorous brainstorming and checking, then they settle on the name. But I just think it's a it's a really interesting process and I think it would be a really fun one to be involved with because I love naming things, you know. Do you? Yeah, I do. Well, it took us about, I don't know, it took us about eight weeks to name our puppy. So, you know, I don't know that I'd be very good. (laughs) I love the idea of it and I think I would, you know, and I do love what they come up with. I mean, it's a great, it sounds to me like a, you know, fantastic job. I'm going to be a nail polish colour namer. Um, But Mm. in reality, I suspect it would be um, quite difficult to actually just light on the exact right thing. Yeah, but once you know, you know. You know, I reckon. Once you know, you know. Yeah. It's that feeling. <laughs> like you know, finding the love it. of your life. Once exactly. you know, you know. <laughs> exactly. It's funny that you said you took eight weeks because I named my pets before I even met them. Did you? I, I knew what they were going to be called before I met them. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's like, I mean, if you think, and naming a baby, oh, now there's a pressure. Wow. Yes, that's Naming a I person. Oh, gosh. Giving yeah. them something that they then have to you know, walk around with for the rest of their lives unless assuming they change it by depot, which some of my friends have done over the years, have gone and changed their names because they just really? felt that they didn't reflect on them as people at all. Um, really? So I do know people who've done that. But mostly you're sort of there with Were the pressure of upset? if he's my minister, what will that, you know, will it, will that be, you know, will this work? And what? But what if he's a rock star? Then he'll need a totally different <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's true. I always think it's weird how, you know how parents name their kids like John uh, Ted Smith and Mm -hmm. from day one they call the kid Ted? I always find that strange. Well, it's probably it's often comes back to the fact that maybe they have to. There's a there's like family tradition stuff that goes on that you just don't even know about, right? So maybe there's yes, eighteen true. Johns in the family because everybody everybody's firstborn is called John. So to differentiate true. between all the Johns, then you're known as Ted. And then other people will be yes. like, well, we you know we we we're going. It's most it is actually generally under those circumstances if they start calling the baby Ted from day one, it's because family tradition has suggested they have to call the baby John. That's and true, but I, I, do know, I do know one guy who the first name was not John. It was, you know, whatever, and no one else in the family had that name. So it was very right. strange. Yes. Okay. It's like you made a mistake or, I don't know, really weird. Anyway. Or, or do you know what else? Yes. Maybe they've gone for John in case he's mm. going to be Prime Minister. He can be John <laughs> in the future, like it's a solid name. But they yes. did. They only went with that because they thought, well, if we call him Teddy, then people yes. are going to maybe not think of him as Prime Minister or lawyer material. So we'll go right. John Ted and then we'll call him Ted. Yeah. Yep. That's what yep. I'm thinking. Could be, could be, could it be. It comes All back right. to the fact that every kid is going to be Prime Minister. I think you just need to remember that. 
Everything, of course, of course. <laughs> anyway, um, if you want to have a look at the blog post on the curious business of naming colours and the chat that we've had with uh, Dulux and Kester Black, the nail polish brand, um, and, of course, Dulux, the paint company, uh, it will be in the show notes. So you want to be a writer.com.au. So now let us move on to our giveaway. Oh, mm. our giveaway. You know, remember how excited I was last episode? Well, our giveaway is still running. It's only running for one more week. And it is the signed copy of Tom Hanks's new book, Uncommon Type. And to be clear, it is signed by the Tom Hanks. So make Ooh. sure you head on over to writercenter.com.au slash win if you want to win a copy. Entries close on the 11th of December. Remember, this is a collection of 17 short stories where each of the stories are linked by one thing. A typewriter plays a part sometimes, a minor part sometimes, a big part in each of these short stories. And that, of course, is because Tom Hanks, like myself, is an avid collector and devotee of vintage and retro typewriters. So Uncommon Type, signed copy, head on over. Not only might you win a copy, uh, a signed copy, all Competition entrants receive a secret promo code to get $90 off the course Short Story Essentials, which is an awesome Ooh. course leading you into the – I mean, by the end, you will have written a short story and hopefully you have written one that's worthy of um, entering into competitions as well. And uh, I, we've got some great feedback on the course. So make sure you go to writercentercomau slash win. Okay. You know what I'm going to say next? <laughs> Do you know what? I've affair- oh, you know we had that interview with um, Jackie French last week yes. and she talked about breaking narrative expectations. <laughs> we don't do that very often. I know no. exactly what you're going to say next. So I as far as, you know, habit. unless you can come up with, a, with an unexpected thing here, I could probably just say as ready as I'll ever be and we don't even have to talk about it anymore. Okay, but I just love saying it. So... All right, (laughs) come on then. Are you ready for the word of the week, Al? (laughs) Oh, what a surprise. I'm as ready as I'll ever be, Val. Okay, well, it's disquisition. Ooh. Like acquisition, but instead of AC, it's D-I-S, disquisition. Have you Mm. used that much? No. No, Never. I can honestly say I've never disquisized anything. (laughs) That's a good Usage. Uh, I'm not sure if that's quite a right word, but it kind of makes sense. So it sounds like it's the opposite of an acquisition. So when you acquire something, it's like you're divesting. It sounds like you're divesting yourself, but it's not at all. So get that out of your head, even though I just put it there. Okay, immediately, right. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, it is a formal discourse or treatise in which a subject is examined and discussed. It's like a dissertation, but the thing is it could be spoken or it could be verbal. So you might say that he gave a long and boring disquisition on his area of study. Yeah, disquisition. So it could be a talk, it could be a written paper, but it's usually very long and and formal and sometimes it's, well, and often it's boring apparently. So okay. disquisition, that's our word of the week. All right. right, let us move on to, this is so exciting, to our writer in residence this week. Okay. 
This is particularly exciting because Sarah Bailey is a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre. She's Woo-hoo! done, yes, just, you know, she's done creative writing and she has written a cracker of a novel. It's called The Dark Late and it is her debut novel. It is a crime thriller and it is, um, I'll let Sarah tell you what it's about, but I want to let you know that it's not only making huge waves in Australia, it has been sold to a leading American publisher for a high six-figure deal and recently sold to the United Kingdom and China too. So this is a gripping story. It's literally unputdownable. Once you start it, well, certainly for me, once I started it, I just couldn't stop. Um, and it didn't, at no point did I feel, um, you know, distracted or did I get uh, that feeling that you sometimes do with debut novelists of, oh, you know, that was, I might have done that differently. This was, this gripped me from beginning to end. And so let's have a chat to Sarah Bailey. Sarah, wow, I've just finished The Dark Lake and <laughs> oh, I can't even speak, to be honest. It was riveting from the first word. I could not put this book down. Uh, it kept me guessing at every turn. Every part of the story, not just the actual, you know, crime, so to speak, that took place, but every part of the story had me absolutely mesmerised. Congratulations. I'm just oh, so Thank you. Thanks thrilled. so much. Honestly, I, I I just loved it. Um, oh, I don't even know where to start because I'm so – I'm still <laughs> in that world. I'm still in Smithson. I'm still in that place and I, I've got to calm down now. So let me <laughs> just perhaps start with the readers who haven't read the book yet and, oh, my God, um, listeners, if you haven't read the book, you got to read this book. Sarah Bailey is going to be big. I mean that. Um, just for, for listeners who haven't read the book yet, um, tell tell them what it's about. Yeah. So the Dark Lake is a is a crime thriller, as you said, um, but it's a crime thriller with a very, I think, a very character oriented focus as well. So it's about the story of a, a young detective in a regional country town. Her name's Gemma Woodstock. She's got a lot of baggage and quite a lot um, going on in her life when the book starts. Um, and then to add to all of that, uh, an old high school classmate of hers turns up um, murdered in the uh, at the local lake um, the day after a big performance has been um, put on at the high school where she's now a teacher and Gemma's assigned to the case. So straight away there's a bit of a problem there because she actually knew her a lot better than she lets on. And as she starts to investigate the case, a lot of the the past um, shared history of the two women comes to the fore and also some of the other things that Gemma's dealing with in her life um, start to become more and more pressing and sort of more urgent in terms of needing to be resolved. So it's, um, yeah, there's quite a lot going on, I think. But, uh, yeah, it flashes back and forward from present to past. And, um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad that you liked it. It's, it's so uh-huh. nice to get feedback like that. I love it. Now, I want to talk more, of course, about the book and your writing process. But just to give people some context, um, just a bit about your own sort of career background and when you started writing or getting interested in writing. Yeah, sure. Um, I, so I think... I've definitely always been interested in writing. 
Um, but I, I didn't sort of end up going down that path once I finished school and university. So I was initially really interested in journalism and I finished um, high school and wanted to get into a sort of journalist kind of um, oriented job. Um, so I actually did a degree in media and communications, but also did marketing as part of that course too. Um, and then sort of stumbled pretty accidentally into advertising, um, but, but landed in an agency that I just loved. So I ended up staying in that role for uh, over a decade. Um, and then, you know, once you're in a, a field of work like that, I guess it's, it's quite addictive because, you know, you sort of get more experience and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but I, I sort of think that a few years ago when I went on maternity leave with my first child and I sort of oddly had more time to think or at least more headspace, I, um, I really fell back in love with writing again and I sort of set a few little deadlines, um, wrote a few blog posts and sort of pitched them to various places. It was kind of that time when the social media world was really exploding, so there was a lot of places looking for content. Um, and I got a real buzz, I think, out of being successful with some of my pitches. Mm -hmm. So even when I went back to work, um, I sort of had a bit of a promise with myself that I would keep writing when, when I could. Um and then, yeah, I just, I sort of uh, had another stint of maternity leave where I wrote a whole lot more sort of short stories and bits and pieces and started thinking about novels. And um, yeah, about two years ago, I just decided it was time to bite the bullet. And I really wanted, um, I set a deadline. I really wanted to try to finish a novel by the time I turned 20, uh, 35 mm -hmm. um, and pitch it and, and give it a really good shot. And um, it was funny, The Dark Lake ended up being published the day after my 35th birthday. So it was it was oh, pretty, right. um, yeah, good serendipity story. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you're writing some short stories, and and you know you 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 said that uh, it kind of you got you got some headspace to think about well stories, I suppose. And I what I yeah. found interesting is I understand that you were actually working on another manuscript that wasn't the Dark Lake, and you know I, I, I presumably that maybe got stuck or something, but then you went on a drive yeah. to Phillip Island. That's, that's and right, yep. that's where you, on that two-hour drive, you mapped out the plot for the Dark Lake. Tell me a bit more about that drive. Yeah, so I, it's, it's, a, it's a funny story. I was actually working really hard on this um, manuscript that I, that I sort of thought about that I, had, that I really liked. I thought the concept was really strong and I was really enjoying writing it. And I'd actually put a lot of effort and time into it. And then at about the 30,000 word mark, I just got stuck and I couldn't kind of work through how to get to the ending. I sort of knew what the ending was, but I just found that middle part really hard. Um, but I was so determined not to give up because I sort of had been told and knew that if you give up, you know, you don't have a book at the end, so you've, you've got to finish. Um, but I think it ended up being quite clear to me that it just wasn't working for a lot of reasons. So I did park it, but I had this other thought sort of just in my mind about this detective, um, female detective who had all of these kinds of secrets and I think I was watching quite a lot of Netflix shows at the time that were obviously sort of really helping feed that kind of particular storyline. So um, I had this idea of her and sort of a lake and something happening in a town and it all being central. But I was driving down to Phillip Island one evening um, and my kids fell asleep in the back. So they weren't sort of talking to me or whatever. And I just sort of had this this really strong idea and thought about how the premise would work and particularly how the book would open. Um, so I kind of got there that night, 
put them to bed and just wrote the prologue of the book, which has ended up basically not changing at all from that first um, that first draft, which is weird because the rest of the books have changed a lot. Um, but that sort of opening um, prologue sort of has stuck. And um, I went to bed and, and kind of felt really, really excited about it. Like I kind of knew that it was a good opening and I thought it was a good start to a story. And then in the next morning, there was a new story on the um, TV, which was awful, like an, an awful um, murder case that sort of just had come out of nowhere overnight that had quite a lot of similarities to um, the story, not not sort of the storyline itself, but just the, the sort of premise of it with a teacher and um, her being found and all of this sort of thing. And I just took it as a bit of a sign that it was just this it was just the right story for me to write at that time. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and then and then from there, um, the difference between this story and the one that I ended up stopping, it just it just flowed so much better, and it was just clearly a more rounded out idea. So I, I sort of stuck with it. So when you were mapping out the plot on your drive, had you mapped out the whole plot or just the start of the story? I think it was it was mainly the start and sort of the the key premise of the book um, and, and also I sort of knew how I wanted it to resolve but a couple of those layered pieces clicked into place later on. I think even, I don't know what it's like for everybody else, but I think even when I do plan out something, things evolve um, as you're writing them and characters kind of evolve as you're writing them and you sort of start to become a little bit more attuned to how they would act and why they would do something. So um, I sort of had the basic, the basic premise, the basic kind of main questions and what the what Gemma's kind of story arc needed to be, um, mm. but not, you know, didn't have the entire sort of book mapped out. Um, and like I said, it changed, you know, quite a lot through the process of editing and getting feedback from people, which was amazing. So it's ended up being a far, far better book than it was when I first thought it was finished. So, Yeah, look, so um, uh, you also enrolled in creative writing um, the creative writing course at the Australian Writers' Centre. So tell me why did. you did that and how that, the impact of that course. Well, I'm giving away some of my top tips, but um, mm. I, yeah, I, I really, for me, I think because I wasn't a writer and because I had a career in another field, it sort of was, it was really important for me to do tangible things that made it clear that I was taking a serious step towards trying to write. Mm. Um, so things like giving myself giving myself deadlines and actually treating it quite seriously and obviously not to the point where I wasn't doing my job because I was still working in advertising, but just trying to make sure that it was it had a bit of structure and that I actually told a few people that I was trying to write a book because I think if you keep it a secret, um, it's something that you can then kind of Skype out on yourself. You don't sort of have to be true to what you've promised yourself you'll do. Mm. So um, I found things like doing the course and actually really taking that seriously and, and sort of trying to learn as much from that as I could, um, telling people I was really getting back into writing and really trying to finish um, something. For me, it was just all, uh, it all helped, I guess, make it become a more serious, real thing in my life. So, yeah, that, I think that's mm. why the course was so good. And so give me some timelines. When, like, you drove down to um, Phillip Island and you wrote the prologue overnight and give me just some yep. vague timelines as to how how long and then until you finished your first draft and then, you know, the key milestones after that. 
Yeah, so I I was really keen to try to finish the book within a year. I sort of thought that was a realistic timeline and to be honest, I get so impatient and, and easily bored that I thought if I'd spent any longer on it than that, I probably would lose interest myself. So I finished, I probably finished about half of the book between April on that first um, night where I started it and November. And then I, um, I actually went overseas for two weeks in November on a holiday and um, really sort of had some more headspace then to think about it and long, long plane trips, which I find such a great um, place to write because it's sort of you can just really zone in and, and get stuck into something. Um, and then when I came back from that trip, I actually left the job that I was in at the time, um, gave them quite a bit of notice, but um, I was really fortunate to have had some long service leave saved up because I'd been there for so long. So once I left, I had two months um, before my year deadline was, was up. And so I spent a lot of that two months um, really writing quite seriously. So I was doing a little tiny bit of freelance work, but for the most part I was um, going to the library or a cafe every day and sitting there and writing for sort of four or five hours and, and getting all the words down. So, wow. um, yeah, so I finished the draft within the year um, and then started pitching it out to uh, agents. So, yeah, it was it was yeah it was it was in bouts of intensity though because obviously sometimes during that year it was really really intense and then other times it was a bit you know kind of an hour here or an hour there. So it was a bit all over so the place. If you were able to do four to five hours when you were able to focus on it fully, like when you yeah. had your leave and stuff, um, I mean when you left your job, while you were at your job, how did you fit it in? Did you have like Sunday afternoons or did you just fit it in whenever? Did you have some structure? How did that work? Yeah, I I, I did fit it in all over the place. Um, I think the good thing about my job in advertising is that you it's so fast-paced and you, you learn to do things really quickly um, and I think that's really helped. I've heard a lot of journalists say this as well, you know, they're used to writing to a deadline, they're used to sort of getting the words down and even though my role in advertising was quite um, business oriented, like I, I wasn't in the creative department. You still you're still under pressure to do things quite quickly. You write presentations quite quite fast. You don't really have time to procrastinate. And I think I think that's definitely helped me when I have time. I really use it quite well. Um, so I would sort of try to do half an hour in the mornings, like get into work or sort of go to the cafe near work early after I drop the kids off, and just do half an hour of either like editing what I'd written yesterday or just quickly kind of jotting down the first bit of a, of a chapter. Um, and then at night, um, yeah, if I didn't have anything on, uh, my kids were quite young back then. So they were actually going to bed at like eight o'clock. So, you know, you can kind of yep. have two hours after, after that, which was quite good. I'm finding it harder to write at night now. I don't know if it's just me getting older, but, um, I definitely seem to be able to do it a lot better than than I seem to be able to do now. Um, and then, yeah, I, I would I would occasionally just block out a, a weekend day, either a Saturday or a Sunday, and just really dedicate it to sort of a big, long stint. So, um, yeah. yeah, the words add up, I guess, when you when you really focus that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I must say that having those having that time at the end where I really had the big blocks of time, mm-hmm. um, that was amazing because. You just didn't have to spend time getting back into the head of your story again. It was, you know, it was there. Yeah. So what did you do to, because this is set sort of like in a country kind of town um, or a town like a few hours out of a capital city. And um, 
It, did you grow up in a small town or, or, or uh, why did you pick there and how did you get into the, hits, uh, into the space not only of the place but of all of the complexity of all of these people's <laughs> lives? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the, the country town thing was, was really uh, important to me from a character perspective because I felt like she needed to be um, kind of isolated. She needed to almost feel quite claustrophobic and stuck in her life. And I think that the the nature of a small country town is much better suited to that than a busy city where there's lots of people around. Um, and I also think that somewhere that where she grew up and kind of knew quite a lot of people aided a lot of the storyline. So that was important as well, sort of that everyone knows everyone type scenario. Um, and the fact that it was um, fictional just made it a bit easier from a um, I guess like a, an environmental perspective. So it didn't have to pay homage to a particular place. Mm. Um, I was quite keen that it wasn't coastal and that it was inland and that it was kind of a bit oppressive and hot. Um, mm. So making it up for me made a lot more sense. But there is a few towns that I've visited um, in my time that I that I definitely drew some inspiration from, um, mm. especially towns that have kind of grown quite quickly or had businesses introduced, which really had an impact on the culture of a town. And that sort of, mm. I guess, comes through a bit in the story as well. Um, and then in terms of the headspace question, I don't know. I mean, it's, she's a combination, I'm, I guess, of a lot of people that I know, but not, not anyone in particular, just sort of, you know, borrowing elements from lots of people. Um, and I definitely read, I read a lot. And I think, um, you know, you sort of, I guess, borrow a lot of characters from across your life that you've read. And I had such a clear idea of how I wanted her to be and how frustrating I wanted her to be, which um, has obviously worked because I get a lot of emails um, from people telling me that they find her really frustrating. So that's, I guess, that's been been a big tick. Um, right. But yeah, yeah, I really do. Um, but yeah, I sort of, I, I was quite, you know, I was quite set that that was important. I think um, she's definitely a flawed uh, heroine and I think for me that's the kinds of stories I like to read is where there's a little bit of tension and a little bit of um, diversity and things don't always go the way they should and, yeah, so, you know, I think that's that's worked out mm. the way I feel it was right. Um, but, yeah, I did, I did talk to I a few I didn't find her frustrating. <laughs> I didn't oh, find her frustrating. <laughs> I found her fascinating. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, no, no. So I did, I did talk also to a few um, detectives and police people as well, particularly yes. female ones. Um, mm. But I didn't, I didn't want to get too um, specific with that because I didn't want to end up, you know, using someone as the character for no, me it was she had you, to be fictional so did yeah. you talk to police or do research because obviously Gemma the main character is a police person um yeah and did you talk to police or have to do research on procedure and what would have happened in you know um some of the processes and investigative um approaches that they used yeah, I did, and I and I'm also um, I've been very um, clear that I'm, I wasn't writing a forensic um, mm. story, and it's not. It's definitely fictional. It's not fact. So there's a little bit of, um, well, quite a lot probably of creative license use throughout the book, but it's it's all on the right side of being feasible and believable. So my whole kind of thought was that I didn't ever want to do something that made someone start sort of being like, "Oh, come on, this is ridiculous." Mm. Um, but I felt like sometimes they could be like. Mm, 
yeah, okay, yeah, we'll go with this. And I think, you know, when you're writing a story that, that isn't um, like a, a really forensic and, and technical um, story, it's okay that it kind of moves yeah. along um, with a little bit of poetic, <laughs> poetic yeah. license here and there. Well, how did you – so tell me the, the rest of the timeline. Your year was up, you wrote your first draft. What happened then? Yeah, so I, I was amazingly fortunate um, in that I went on the internet and downloaded a list of all of the agents in Australia mm-hmm. and read all of their subscription information very carefully because I think I'd you know probably listened to your podcast and it had said don't, you know, don't not obey their instructions. They're very strict with their instructions. And so I started at A in the alphabet and um, approached um, Australian Literary Management and it said, you know, they said very clearly do not approach someone else while under subscription with us. So I sent off my manuscript to them and waited and didn't approach anyone else and then was really, really worried that I'd be waiting for a long time and, um, you know, that kind of giving up precious book and work time. Um, but I ended up hearing back from Lynn, my agent, um, within about three days and she just sort of said, yeah, I like the start of this, so send me the rest of it and we'll we'll see. So I sent her the rest of the book and, um, yeah, she called me and she said, look, I, I really love the story. I think that there's a few things that you need to rework and look at and if you're willing to work with me then I'll sign you on. Um, so I said yes, and um, she she and her um, team had uh, quite a bit of feedback. So I probably spent about three or four months uh, reworking the book based on their points, which was which was tricky, only because um, I guess it had been mine and mine only for twelve months. But yes. their feedback was amazing, and I've really learnt that pretty much all the feedback I get from editors and people invested in the book, it's they've all got the same agenda. So. They're very often um, right or, you know, there's a version of what they're saying that's right. So um, it was a really good learning, I think, for me, how much better the book that I thought was done could actually end up being. So I um, got what over kind of the feedback, shock of things. Um, what, oh, sort of structural example? feedback, like um, a few a few character actions that they felt were either too far or not far enough. So mm. really challenging me to sort of say, you know, do you really think that they would behave like this or this feels a bit jarring based on what they did earlier in the book? Can you relook at that? And um, right. yeah, just stuff that, that really did help, I think, to balance the book out, which I think you lose perspective on when you've yeah. reread it, you know, a hundred times. So. Times. Yeah, a thousand times. Yeah, so it was really that was really helpful. Um, hard. It's really hard to yes. untangle something that sort of what you think's done. But um, yes. yeah, did that, and then um, they felt like it was in a position that it could get pitched out to publishers. So they sent it out to you know the, the five publishers they felt were appropriate. And um, yeah, we were just so, super lucky. There was uh, three. I think three of them were really interested, and then Alan and Unwin um, came through and said that they really wanted to. Um, to buy the rights to it and um, we accepted their offer and then they have ever since, they've just been amazing. So mm. they also had quite a bit of um, feedback and changes and I worked with an editor and that was hard too. But um, mm-hmm. by that point, I guess I was so, you were so clear that it was going to become a book that that was quite motivating. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm obviously going to do this because I can't not now. Um but yeah, it was it was definitely like challenging taking on board everyone's different points of view, and then yes. um, it was basically published in it was published in May this year, so it was just over two years, I guess, since I started writing it, um, 
and then Alan and Unwin purchased the the world rights and have managed to um, sell them to quite a few different territories. So it's quite strange. I didn't really ever realise this, but the books sort of yet to come out now in you know the UK and Italy and China. So it's kind of this rolling, ongoing publication process, which is quite great because it really keeps the book in orbit and it keeps mm. like my excitement about it kind of high as well, which is which is really fun. Um, but yeah, it's been an amazing, amazing process and such an amazing learning curve. And so fantastic that it's been sold to America and UK and China and all of those places. I mean, that's yeah, just crazy. Yeah, <laughs> wonderful. So yeah. after, you know, you, you sent off the final thing, you did all of the edits, you know, you did, you worked with Alan and Unwin. Um, what happened then? Um, so then it kind of went into its own little conveyor belt process. So they, um, you know, they were doing the book covers and all that sort of stuff. But and how then, about you? Did you? Did you? Oh me. So I'm still working. Start... Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. No. So I'm still working in advertising. So in the midst of like all of the um, the agent being uh, sort of being quite encouraging, and then the book being pitched out, I'd obviously not worked for sort of um, three months or so. So I kind of had to get back to work. So I um, took another job in advertising, and so I was doing that all um, from last from last July to, to now and so I'm still in, a, in an advertising role but it's a little bit more of a flexible one than probably what I had been in previously so I've been able to kind of split my time a bit better between writing and working which has been really really good um, because I've had a sequel to write. Oh, oh you're, you're yeah, writing a sequel? So, yeah so I'm actually almost finished the final final draft of the sequel which will be wow. out next May yeah, so this it's actually been quicker, um, this process, because I had like a real deadline by a real yes. publisher as opposed yes. to my own self-imposed one. Um, wow. So, yeah, it was pretty crazy. I think it was last August that um, the, the American publisher and, and Alan and Unwin both said that they wanted a, a sequel to The Dark Lake. So yep. um, I had sort of uh, almost a year, not quite a year, to hand in the first draft. Um, and then um, I've just been doing edits and changes over the last few months so it'll sort of it'll be out exactly a year later than the dark lake so it'll be out in may this this so coming 2010 were you, were you always going to write a crime thriller were you, is that your thing did you did you want <laughs> well, to write crime i think it is now i've been told it, it is now um, which is fine because i i really like it um, I didn't ever intend to write a crime thriller, but when I think about it, all of the stories that I've ever really started or been interested in do tend to have some kind of crime murder type thing in them. Um, but I think I do also really like that character oriented story type mm. style. So I think if I can combine those two things, I think I'll be pretty happy staying in this genre for, you know, as long as I'll be allowed to, um, but, yeah, I do find it some sort of funny sometimes because I obviously now get um, invited to lots of crime-type yeah. um, things and I just sort of do almost feel a bit like, oh, I don't really feel like a crime person. But, um, yeah, I love it. I love reading crime and I do obviously really like writing it. So I'm, I'm pretty happy that it's worked out this way. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. So um, before we wrap up, tell me what are your, say, three tips um, uh, to aspiring writers on what they should be doing? Yeah, so I've thought about this. So um, we already talked about doing a course and I do I do really believe that doing, not doing courses forever in terms of almost procrastinating with doing courses, but definitely, you know, cherry picking a couple of courses that 
really will kickstart your reinterest in writing again or just a particular topic that perhaps you feel like you get stuck on. And for me, just that that basic kind of creative writing course was so helpful to me. It was that just that um, sort of reprogramming I almost needed again to do with structure and mm-hmm. and that kind of character journey. And I think it really helped me think about my stories in a little bit more of a um, scientific way almost, which I think when, especially when you're writing crimes, actually quite helpful because there is such a structure to it. So I really, I really loved that creative writing course with the, um, Australian Writer Centre. It was, it was great. Um, another tip, and I know that everyone says to read a lot, which I think is definitely, definitely worthwhile, but, um, I try sometimes now to read with intent. And what I mean by that is just um, when I'm actually looking at a book and looking at the way it's been structured and why it works so well, I still read it and really enjoy it. But I am, I guess, a bit more conscious of the way that it's been put together and the decisions that the author's made. And I find it really helpful sometimes to sort of look at a book and say, I'm going to read that more as a learning kind of experience book Mm -hmm. than a complete pleasure book. Um, I tend to do that with crime, obviously, a bit more than I do it with just sort of fiction, which I just really love and don't really think too much about. Mm -hmm. Um, But a couple of the big kind of crime books over the last couple of years, I've sort of I've read or reread with a bit more of an intent and a bit more of an eye on exactly how and why it's worked so well. So I find that quite inspiring. Um, And then I guess I'm just a big, big deadlines person and a big finishing, finishing person. So I set really strange little deadlines for myself all the time, whether it's, you know, that chapter, that word count, that, that problem I need to solve um, that date that this needs to be done by. And for me, it's, it just helps me stay on track. And I think if I didn't do it, I just don't think books would get written. So, um, yeah, I think finishing. Do you reward yourself? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And it's little, like it can be either like, I'm not actually going to go to that thing until that's finished, or it can be like really micro things. Like I won't have another coffee until I finish this chapter. Like, I think it's just little sort of, um, just breaking up the time because everyone's got the same amount of time I suppose it's just a matter of how you use it so I I just find the deadlines for me if I didn't do it I just it just wouldn't happen so yeah I think that's pretty useful in terms of trying to get to a finished book or story yeah and um when you finally when you did hear from um well, whoever I presumably your agent that you got the deal the book deal (laughs) yeah can you yeah. just describe what you were doing at the time and and how you felt to the news and and what actually happened? Yeah, it was pretty funny. I was at work and I was in um, I was in the car with my boss at the time, driving out to a meeting really far away, and um, she called me and said, "This is the offer. I think it's you know amazing. We've got to take this. They're being really supportive, and now I'm an an amazing publisher and whatever." And um, I was sort of in the car and I was so excited, but I was, you know, about to go to this like presentation or something. So I was kind of trying to temper my excitement. Um, But, you know, my boss at the time, he's an old friend, so he was so excited for me as well. And it was just, it was really nice actually. So I sort of knew that it was um, likely and then it kind of all got formally confirmed uh, about two days later. So it was just, it was such an exciting time and that sort of whole um, rolling I had this amazing rolling few weeks of that news 
and then the overseas news and then the news on the sequel and it was oh just God. like it was dream after dream after dream so it was um yes. yeah it was it was amazing I was I felt incredibly lucky and just so uh, thankful that I'd actually finished the book that you know I definitely <laughs> quite a few times had decided that I couldn't do it so um wow. yeah it was incredible as well it was really nice Sarah, you're not lucky. You deserve it. It is an absolutely brilliant, <laughs> brilliant book. I have loved reading every word. So I'm just so, so thrilled for you as well. And like I said, this is just the beginning. It's You're going to be huge. I know. <laughs> All right. Anyway, thank you so much for your time today. And, um, yeah, I can't wait to read the sequel. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. There you go, Sarah Bailey. Well, that was fantastic. Great interview, Val. I'm so excited by, you know, it's been such a big year for Australian oh. Writers' Centre graduates. I just can't believe how much, you know, great news there's been. And, you know, as the person who does the Twitter and Facebook announcements and shares and whatever, like it's just, um, you know, it just seems like there's an AWC grad in every corner of the world right now, which is yeah. yay to Yay, very, very exciting. You know, Tanya Blanchard, she did advanced fiction writing techniques at the Australian Writers' Centre and she's released The Girl from Munich, Shankari Chandran, who we've had, uh, did Crime and Thriller and she released The Barrier and has a, a whole heap of other things in the works that oh, are so she exciting. Gets and also let's talk about the, the thing I love about – so that was a really interesting case, that particular thing, because we did the interview, right, mm. and then so many people – Heard about heard her speak about the book, and then they bought the book, and then they were yes. talking about the book in the podcast group, and yeah. it was so. I, I just love like seeing how um, I think authors talking about their work is such a great. It, it really piques the interest, doesn't it? Of yeah. of when they tell the story well, people go, I really yes. want to, I really want to go and read that. I think, um, I think one of the things that we, t we have discussed and it is in our author platform group is that learning how to be interviewed, like it, taking mm. the time to learn how to answer questions, to talk about, you know, to work out what you want to talk about in an interview, to make mm. sure that you get the points across that you want to get across as well as just answering the questions. Um, because when you learn how to talk about your book well, it makes a huge difference to how people receive the book, I think, don't you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And it does frustrate me sometimes when I go to writers' festivals and um, I watch authors being interviewed and they're being interviewed, you know, by, by uh, they're being interviewed well, but they're clearly not, they're only answering the question and they're kind of, wait, they're very passive. So they're mm -hmm. kind of waiting for the interviewer to ask them the question that's going to draw out the amazing story. And it's like, just tell the amazing story for goodness sake. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the interviewer is not a mind reader and you can no. tell when there's a passive interviewee and it frustrates me to no end. 
<laughs> it's it it's well yes, but like let's be fair, it mm-hmm. it is like having been that, that person, it is nerves as well as also, and it's also just that sort of it's the confidence that comes from you know being interviewed or you know I mean you and I talk to each other so much it's like being interviewed every week it's like practice although I would never actually speak in an interview I would not call another interviewer a goober on any level (laughs) (laughs) ever so Uh let me just get that out there right now but like it is it is practice and that's what I say to people who are you know nervous about it it's just like you know what you just need to practice and if that means every single person in your life sitting down and asking you five different questions and it's also that whole thing of like get your inspiration story lined up get your tat you know the the log line for your book lined up get that short description of so uh, here's an example I turned up at Abby's bookshop on Friday afternoon because I was going to sign some books so Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that I'm just going to pop in, sign a few books, say hello to people and then leave. I get there and they're like, oh, we're so glad you're here. Let's do a video. Now, Hello. everybody who has listened to this podcast will know how much I love a video, not. And I was like, oh, okay. So they said to me, all right, so they lined all the books up behind me and they made me stand in front of a shelf and then they're like, okay, just tell us about the books. Okay. <laughs> now, if I had not had much practice at, you know, hi, I'm a, I'm Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, and I'm here, you know, I'm signing copies of the Mapmaker Chronicles, which is a series about a race to map the world and a boy who really doesn't want to go. And I'm also here to sign the first book of the Adaban Cipher series, which is called The Book of Secrets, and it's mm. all about a book that no one can read. Why would you write a book that no one can read? You'll have to read the book to find out. So that was just like, bang. And it's because I have practiced it so often. And that's what Mm. I say to other authors, practice. Even if you feel like an idiot, practice. Anyway, I totally segued. But anyway, yes, Shankari, awesome. And book, so awesome. Yes, yes. And I totally agree about the practice because I was workshopping with an author who had written, I think it was three books at at that time. It might have been four. Anyway, um, who – was going to do a series of things on camera again, like, you know, film the next day. And I said, come on, let's just practice. And she she just flat out refused. And I said, no, seriously, it'll be a lot better if you practice, you know, if you don't want to practice with me, that's okay. Just practice with somebody else, just as long as you practice, because it's a lot, you know, it's very different when you um, need to do it in real life. And again, she flat out refused. I'm not entirely sure why. I'm not sure whether she didn't feel she needed to or she was thought just it would be a waste of you, time. No, I said, but she didn't have to do it with me. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, Even yeah. if you just practice in front of the mirror. And, yeah, the next day she tanked, like beyond tanked. It was unusable. So it was a waste of everyone's time, oh, including, the, including the film person, including incl- everyone, you know. Um, so yes, that's a shame, but yes, back to wonderful graduates, Sarah Bailey, (laughs) uh, yeah, Tanya Blanchard, Shankari, Shelley Unwin, who's released your five series and has another two coming up. Um, so many people who have done so well, um, and even more to come as we've heard Joanna Nell and, Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's who's, uh, I think a two book deal with Hachette. So very, very exciting guys. You're all kicking huge goals. So, Absolutely. As are, are your doing? presenters. 
Exactly, exactly. Mm. Like so- I can't even keep up with what's going on with them. There's books coming out in all directions. Yes, yes. So speaking of um, presenting and writing and all of that, what are you doing in this coming week, Al? Uh, so this week, people, we are on a mission, all right? We are on an absolute, total and utter mission to get a manuscript finished by the time the children oh, go on yes. school holidays. So you, will, I will be on social media. I will be 530, hashtag. I will be all of the things, word counts, mm. whatever, because I have to get this done and I've probably got about – Oh, I reckon 10,000 words to go. So we need to, you know, get that first draft out. So that's what I'm doing this week, apart from talking to you, of course, Mom, <laughs> which is always a highlight. Very exciting. Well, and you, I what am, are you doing? let's see, um, apart from recovering from some busy, busy weeks, felt like a truck hit me yesterday, but I, I'm recovered now. Uh, mm. Apart from recovering, I'm taking a group of students um, Australian Writers' Centre students, it's, it was kind of a little bit of a surprise actually, to oh. breakfast with Lisa Wilkinson. So that what? should be interesting. Yes. How exciting. Very exciting. That's so, so exciting. You know, to- oh, there's something else I'm doing I forgot that I, that I should have probably mentioned a lot earlier because I do have an offer on at the moment. I'm sending out bookmarks. That's oh, yes. the other thing I'm doing. I've got a stack of bookmarks here to send out, which is very exciting. Um, signed you bookmarks. Have, signed I know. Bookmarks. Signed bookmarks. If you have bought a copy of the Book of Secrets or of any of the Mapmaker Chronicles books for someone for Christmas or for yourself, whichever, um, then and you would like me to send a signed bookmark to go with those books, um, all you have to do is post a picture of the book somewhere on social media, Twitter, Instagram or Facebook and tag me um, and we will discuss your, you know, PM, DM, your um, postal address and I will get it in the post. And the offer is open until the 10th of December. And, yes, I am sending them to the US and the UK if you are out there with books that you are going to be handing over. Um, Yeah, so post a picture on social media and uh, tag me in some way and I will send you out a signed bookmark. Very exciting. Fantastic. Fantastic. Mm. All right, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, so you will find me um, at alisontate.com, which is my home on the website, a double on the on the website, on the internet. A double L I S O N T A I T dot com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A L T A I T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, make sure you join our listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. It's free to join and it's a great place to hang out and connect and talk about all things writing and all things to do with this podcast. So, um, yeah, connect with us there. You'll find the show notes at soyouwanttobearwriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>